Okay. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day to be alive, courtesy of your grace and mercy. We ask your blessing be with all of us in this congregation. We ask that you bless our sick and those that want to be there, be here as you know their hearts. And we ask also that you give them peace, spiritual blessings in their times of trial. Father, we most of all thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for his sacrifice on the cross once for all, for all of us, so that whoever repents and turns to him will be saved forever and ever by your grace. Father, we ask for your spirit to guide us and teach us this evening as usual. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. Okay, what is good? What is good? And who gets to define it? Part three. So let's start this way. Everybody ready? Brace yourself. We all have a perverted definition of what is good in this life. And if you didn't think that before Sunday's message, hopefully you thought that after Sunday's message. We all have a perverted definition of what is good in this life. We're skewed. We're skewed from birth. And that's why we don't see a lot of our mistakes, because it's so ingrained. So no matter how spiritual you might try to think or, or think you're living even, uh, there are areas in all of our lives where we're, we're guilty, we're um, uh, deceived, we're remiss in certain areas of our lives, calling the wrong things good, approving of the wrong things, etc. So being brainwashed, let's say, since childhood, we don't even notice the things we do call good. We don't even notice it unless they're pointed out by the Spirit and by the Word. But they're there. And, I, you know, I don't know, personally, I saw a few of them on uh, Sunday for me. You know, I started out, the message was going, I'm like, oh, I got this. You know, I don't, I don't misappropriate good. You know, I know divine good and earthly good, right? And then, you know, the Spirit smacks you around a little bit, says, you are wrong in this area and this area, and you're calling the wrong things good. So we all do it, and uh, thank God for his um, patience in showing us gradually over time and not hitting us over the head so hard that we can't function. He's so gracious. He's just that perfect father with the rod and the staff, and that's what he's doing for us one day at a time like this. So that, and that's why we must never get discouraged when we see our failures in certain areas like this. We should never get down on ourselves. God's not coming at us from a condemnation point of view. He's coming at us as a good father with the rod and the staff, right? Sometimes he knows he needs to whack you a little bit. Sometimes he's just nudging you in the right direction. But it's from the fatherly love point of view, always, being children of God as believers. So don't ever get discouraged. But the first way to truth is to admit you're deceived and need God's help. Amen? That's the first way to truth. In whatever area it is we're talking about, whatever area of life we're failing, admit you're deceived. Humbly admit you're wrong, at least in some of the areas being discussed, and ask for God's help. 
And thank God he reveals himself and his goodness to his creatures, and there is no excuse. He's that fair, in other words. He's that just to all mankind. And one way is through the bold beauty of nature, which is known and seen by all. That's what we've been talking about lately. God uses creation to testify to his sovereignty in the universe, and the Bible tells us a lot about this. In fact, you know, this is a major theme. There's so many passages about creation, about God's majesty revealed through creation, and how God is basically trying to get our attention as the human race through these wonderful um, things that we can't even put our thumb on. We can't even describe the size of the universe, how big the sun is. We can't even fathom these things. And that's how God likes it, so that we humble ourselves. And we're in a position to turn to him in humility. It's beautiful, really. So on the board we saw on Sunday, our first main point was that God is good, and God knows good. And how do we know this? Because the Bible also says God is love. God is love. And being perfect, he's perfect love. Can perfect love do anything but what is good? It's not possible. And so God is good. We know that because he is love. And until the fall in the garden, man only knew good. An amazing time for a man in the history of man. The only time in the history of man when man only knew good. Was there ever a more pure time in human history than before the fall in the Garden of Eden? Never. Not even close. But, thank God, Christ came as the second Adam, remember, so that all who believe that can be possible again for us one day in the future. That purity of the garden, that goodness, pure goodness experienced by man, which we get little glimpses of it now, living in our new nature, but to be out of this flesh and to be pure and holy with God one day forever, it's possible now because of the second Adam. But before the fall, man knew and only knew good. So turn again to Genesis 1.1. Let's read through this again and experience good from God's point of view. This might be the first and most basic kind of good, but the simple things are the best kind of thing. The little things are the big things. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So there is our first mention of general revelation, as we've been discussing which, again, just means God revealing himself through creation. When you hear the word revelation, think of God revealing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Notice on a side note here, God doesn't say that the darkness was good. He only says the light was good. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, 
and there was evening, and there was morning one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation. Planting uh, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. By the way, at this point, how much... Does God enjoy giving life? Almost like, look how much fun God is having, creating these new, so many, endless new species and kinds and letting them replicate after each other, filling the seas, it says, filling the waters. You know, how many, and we've been through this a little bit before, but how many fish do you think are in the ocean right now? And then let's go to one kind of fish, right? How many bluefish are in the world right now like these things are so unfathomable and God's like I, I just want to keep creating I just want to keep giving life you know that's what I do and then he brought us in but just amazing um, we would do well to simply walk around and observe and appreciate all kinds of life that God has given and simply enjoy that as true goodness and we could Honestly, we could say two things are eternally good things to do in this life. You know, some people will say to me, uh, I'm bored. I don't know what to do with my time, right? Well, how about spread the gospel and go outside and appreciate God's creation? If you just did those two things in your spare time, you would be bringing God, God tremendous glory. You would be, you know making the most of the time because the days are evil. And when we appreciate God's creation, when we appreciate life and things like that, we're actually worshiping God by doing that. 
we're praising God, worshiping God in our souls. A lot of it is between us and Him. But that's what He wants. He wants our attention. He wants our heart, right? So, like, don't overlook these things. These, these simple, so, so, you know, so-called simple things that we overlook, we're just familiar with. These are the truly good things. And these are things that bring you peace and happiness instead of the things that the world throws at you and gets you all spun up with. So let's keep going. Genesis 1.23. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. By the way, there's more proof of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So, on this note, there's a great example of pure goodness and, you know, life. They're really the simple things. But one more time on the board, a very important point to grasp from this Pastor Mark Dever. God defines what is good. God defines what is good. Goodness or righteousness is not an external standard that God effortless, effortlessly and perfectly conforms to. Rather, goodness is a way of describing God and all his actions and commands. In other words, God is good. You know, he's not conforming to some standard of good that's outside of him. He is good. He possesses good. He invented good, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, he doesn't have to conform to any external standard. Likewise, being made in the image of God, man was created knowing God's goodness in the Garden of Eden. Man knew God's goodness in the purest sense. In the beginning, that's all man knew. That's all he was even aware of. It's hard for us to fathom. But what a nice time that must have been. Without... Zero distraction, zero pull towards sin, sin nature, temptation, right? This pure time. And on the board, if we go back before the fall regard, regarding simplicity and purity in the garden, all man was called to do was to keep on trusting his good God and creator. That's all he was called to do. 
beautiful. And he blew it. But what a beautiful, like what an amazing thing that must have been when they were in that element. You mean that's all you want me to do, Lord? Like thank you and appreciate all these things you've given me and all the food and the fruit and the animals and, you know, the, the power over all these creatures? That's what you want me to do? All right. Let's have a good time each and every day. It wasn't until they messed it up that they um, ruined this purely simple, beautiful, truly good thing. So there was the simplicity and purity of devotion to the Lord, to the one who gave them everything good. There we have a pure illustration in Genesis of what we should be thinking of as good. On Sunday, we paused there, and the Spirit asked us to consider what we think of or call good in our lives, in our world. And it was quite a humbling request, if you're honest. On the board, regarding pre-fall versus today, is it really good to celebrate heroes and idols? Is that really a good thing? Like, it seems good to the flesh. It seems okay. It seems uh, even honorable to the flesh. But is that really a good thing to celebrate heroes and idols that are just people? Is it really good to celebrate perverted love, such as same-sex marriages? To protect a mother by promoting abortion. Is that really good? The world will tell you it is good. The flesh tells you it is good. But again, we're just so twisted in our priorities, basically. And then, is it really good to live licentiously under the auspices of grace? Paul said, may it never be. But these are things that we, we do, we think, or we at least give into. And we should be, like, uh, defending our Lord, like defending His honor in certain situations, not judging people, not going around pointing fingers. But when you're presented with an option, well, you have to make a choice, especially, right? Do I celebrate what my friend is doing over here and wants me to celebrate with them? See, because once someone brings you into the situation, now you're in the situation, and you have to make a decision. You have to say, am I going to um, go along with this and give into this and have it appear to be okay, them knowing I'm a Christian? Or am I going to have to say something, speak the truth in love, be honest, and not call evil good? Adam and the woman wouldn't have even understood the possibility of this thinking on the board, uh, being perfect and totally unaware of such evil options. They had no knowledge of such things even existing. And again, how sweet that must have been for a time. But the Lord, in his fairness and his justice, as we know, had to give man an option in the form of a test. He didn't just want robots who followed him. So here it is, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2.9. Look at Genesis 2.9 again. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
as we've been taught, knowledge is much more than just notes in a notebook. It involves a relationship, truly getting to know God through the Spirit of God. That's what knowledge is for. It's not just, you know, facts on a paper. It's not just um, data. Knowledge is for the purpose of getting to know someone. Let's bring it to brass tacks and like spiritual life. Knowledge is for the purpose of getting to know God. The Lord said in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So he never knew them because these people never really wanted to know him. And therefore they practiced lawlessness. So that's what knowledge is meant to do. Make you know somebody personally. Make you know their spirit even. And as Pastor mentioned on Sunday regarding this verse on the board, Jesus was referring to divine knowing, a transcendent intimacy, a divine relationship. Not just knowing the facts about Jesus. Not just a mental assent to a religion that says this is what this guy is and who this guy is and where he's from. It's not about those details. It's about uh, using those details to become intimate with somebody. And religion doesn't really want to do that because then they have to actually answer to God, but they don't realize the gracious God that we have. But this type of uh, transcendent knowing, this divine knowledge, so to speak, it's the same thing in Genesis 2.9. It says the knowledge of the good, knowledge of good and evil through this tree. Again, after God declares his creation very good, he puts before Adam and the woman a simple test. Again, in Genesis 2.9, he plants in the garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then the woman is taken captive by Satan's lies. All right, they're told not to eat of this one tree. That's their only thing they're told. And the woman is taken captive by Satan's lies. Why? This came out on Sunday. She allows Satan to do a little thinking for her. I mean, have you ever allowed people to do a little thinking for you? Especially people you admire or people that are intelligent or good with their speech. And you kind of want to be like them because you don't have that. So what do you do? You adopt their thoughts. You adopt their convictions even. So that's what she does. And really it sounds like Religious people nowadays who reject looking into their own Bible, they're happy to stay in their little religion where they can live how they want and they don't have to really get to know the Lord. They don't really have to get to answer to Him, um, even love Him. They don't want to make themselves vulnerable or change because they're their own God. So Satan, or she allows Satan to do a little thinking for her as we all do from time to time. But the woman got lazy and listened to lies. And it was from a source other than the word of God. 
Now think about it. Back then, they didn't have the written word of God, obviously, right? Because they didn't need it. Because literally, the word of God was coming out of God's mouth. They had that kind of relationship with God. So she said, let me get wisdom from somewhere else. Why? Well, Satan's very deceptive, but it's also her decision. So we have to ask ourselves, who do we let do a little thinking for us in our lives? Who do we let do that? We have the truth of the word of God. Who do we let do that that is not, you know, influenced by the word of God? One example, think about the variety of personalities on TV that we grow to trust because they're smart or they're beautiful or they're smooth in talk or they're funny, right? Somebody's funny, they made you laugh. Now you listen to anything they say. It's true if you think about it. And you forgive the stupid things they say or even the things that are against God because they're funny. And you choose to overlook them and just keep going. Just keep making me laugh. Who do we let do thinking for us? And whose message are they advancing, by the way, as they suck you in? Who in your personal life are you allowing to do a little thinking for you? Is it someone you admire for some earthly reason, some fleshly reason that doesn't carry a godly perspective? I bet if we thought hard enough, we could all come up with at least one person that we let do some thinking for us. That we listen to what they say, even though it's not godly, because they're a good person, quote unquote, is that skewed version again, or because they make you laugh, or because they've been there for you in the past. I don't know. Could be a lot of things, a lot of reasons. But it's unhealthy, it's dangerous. Just like the serpent talking to Eve. I talked to one woman today who's had a tough life. Legitimately, she's had a lot of uh, tough things in her life, tragedies. And she told me that her sister told her not to go to church anymore. Almost like to change her luck or something. And obviously, her sister doesn't have any faith of her own. But... <laughs> How's that someone to listen to? And if she has too much esteem for her sister, she's going to listen to her, even though it's an ungodly solution to your problems in life. And so Satan hisses handsomely to the woman in the garden in seductive tone. Look at Genesis 3.5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is what Satan whispers to the woman. God knows you're going to be like him if you eat from this tree and know good and evil. On the board we saw regarding knowing good and evil, this implies an intimacy that was unknown, inexperienced by humanity before the fall. The serpentine lie was that it was good to know good and evil, to live in it, to abide in it, to forfeit the so-called ignorance of the purity of faith and worship. The ability to just follow God, and that's it. Just to thank God for everything he gave you. They, for, you know, they, they, they passed that over. Being told that they were ignorant, basically, by Satan. This, 
there's something God's not telling you. Don't you want to know that? And so sin was born into the human race, and with it, death. And remember, in the Bible, death isn't just physical death. It's separation from God. You know, it's not knowing him anymore kind of thing. They were truly cut off from God when they sinned. And they had to be saved themselves by God. So here's the point of this discussion, something the Spirit brought out on Sunday on the board. The great deception throughout human history is that goodness is perversely defined. That's the great deception throughout human history. Goodness is perversely defined. There's other definitions. There's other counterfeits that are totally accepted, even by believers. Just like when people say they think they'll go to heaven because they're a good person. What definition are they using of good? What standard are they using? Compared to others? Compared to the murderer? Or is it compared to God's? God's definition of goodness. The Spirit said through James that if you keep the whole law yet stumble in one part, you're guilty of breaking it all. There's a perspective on goodness that should be shared with our Catholic friends who think they're good enough to go to heaven. You break one part of the law, you break one of the Ten Commandments, you're guilty of the whole thing. In God's eyes, you're a murderer. You might not like that, but in God's eyes, that's how guilty you are. Totally guilty. So now what? Again, on the board, the great deception throughout human history is that goodness is perversely defined, even by religion, in the name of God. So people live in deception and think they're on the right track. Paul expressed his warning to us and related it directly to what happened in the garden. A turn to 2 Corinthians 11.3. Second Corinthians 11.3. Paul used the garden as a great example to us of not listening to the lies in the world that are going to just ruin whatever goodness you have in your relationship with God, ruin that intimacy, ruin that, that knowing that Jesus knows you, for example, and you know him. Anything to ruin that. Second Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We bring God like the most glory when we're doing the simplest things of obedience, like spreading the gospel and going outside and thanking him for all the life and creation out there. Paul is using what happened in the garden as an example for us not to follow. And this is why we believers must guard our hearts as we walk around in this world, the devil's world. Turn, it, turn to us, 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. We have a good passage that kind of brings together several thoughts that we've been discussing. 
But we must never remember where, where we're at in this world. We're pilgrims passing through. We're visitors. We're aliens. And we're in enemy territory. So as we're walking about and when things are going good, you know, and you don't really have any problems or life's going smoothly or whatever, you can't forget you're walking in enemy territory at all times. I mean, you never would let your guard down if you knew you were in enemy territory. So, you know, just be on guard. This is uh, the devil's world right now. Look at 2 Corinthians 4.1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Boy, is that an impregnated passage. But the God who said in verse 6, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But on the board, the devil is temporarily the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And he is handsomely hissing at us each day. And he knows the seductive tone and even appearances that draw each one of us away. Don't underestimate the wiles of your enemy. You know, where Satan talked to the woman one way, Satan would talk to the man another way. You know, do you think he can maybe use a woman's voice to deceive the man or men in general? Does it every day and vice versa. He'll adapt his way just like a chameleon, the smooth serpent that he is, to do exactly what he needs to to draw you in. If, you're, if you leave yourself unguarded, open to it. He's way smarter than us. He's been on the earth for thousands of years deceiving humans along with his demons. So don't underestimate him and don't even give him an opportunity in your life. How many of you, how many of us give Satan an opportunity in our, in our lives, in our daily walk? How many of us open doors up for him sometimes? Entertaining something evil, right? entertaining or celebrating something evil. We just open up a door. We say, come on, come on in, God, give it a try. Try to deceive me. It's kind of what we do. Maybe a little bit arrogantly. But on the board, you know, the devil's the god of this world right now. And he has his smooth talk to seduce and deceive each and every one of us away. So be on guard for your hearts that your hearts don't buy his lies about what is good in this life. That's been a recurring theme. Guard your hearts. 
It's precious. Like God is after our hearts. He's given us, us new hearts in Christ. And now he's like, you're in enemy territory. Guard your hearts. Just remember who you are. You're a soldier for Christ in enemy territory. Guard your hearts. For example, on the board, it is not good to seek a definition for good anywhere than from the Word of God. So, like, you've got to examine your own life for this. I don't know what the example is in your life that this might be. But are you looking for good things that are outside the Word of God or against the Word of God in some way? It's not good to accept the world's definition for good in any way, shape, or form. So be careful. Even if it is someone that you quote-unquote admire on TV. It's not good to accept criticism for your beliefs as viable alternatives. You know, someone says, well, I believe this. Even though they don't give you any scripture for it. And you say, huh, maybe. Why, why would you even do that when you know it's not from the Word of God? Why would you even think that way? Do you remember the blog about options? We don't have any options. Satan and the world lie to us and say, you have options. There's only one truth. We have the word of God. So don't think it's good to um, give in to other people's suggestions that are against the word. And finally, it's not good to accept evil for good or good for evil. Kind of obviously on that one, right? Isaiah 5.20. If you look at the points on the board, these four examples are almost on an increasing scale. It starts with the first point, you know, seeking a definition for good outside the Word of God, and then we accept the world's definition for good in some area of our lives, and then we accept criticism for our beliefs, options, so to speak, as an alternative truth, and then we totally flip, accepting evil for good and good for evil. You say, I would never do that. Well, if you stay in the Word of God, you won't. But if you don't, you will. Because the world is tedious, right? It keeps pecking at you and pecking at you and pecking at you. And if you don't have the Word of God and you don't have the shield of faith up, you're going to give in. Because it's, like, uh, it's like a dripping faucet. You know, it just won't stop. But the word only can protect us from these things. So as we go about sharing the gospel, some will encounter or some will counter our good news with news of their own. So be ready for that. And they're going to be fleeting, foolish ideas that counterfeit the gospel. You know, I was thinking earlier as we read that passage, I think it was Genesis 1. It's easy to believe that God created all these things and put them in their places the way they are than it is to believe evolution. It takes more faith to believe evolution is true or to believe it all happened by chance. But when someone tells you that face to face, when you give them the gospel, you're going to have a little temptation to say, maybe they're right in some area. All right? Maybe they're a very convincing person. Maybe there's someone you love, uh, someone that you admire again, and you, so you, you give in. That's a phrase that has come up several times, and we have to be careful of. The Spirit's not just saying, don't do this bad thing. He's saying, like, in your heart, 
don't even give in to it as a possibility. Don't even give it to it as a possible option for truth. So be on guard for that. It's going to happen, especially as you go out and spread the word of God, because Satan's going to uh, target you and be like, I don't like what's going on here. Let me send in my slickest salesman to talk them out of this thing and embarrass them in front of everybody. Just be on guard, that's all. And God will God'll you know, cover your back and also give you the words to speak. Remember that? Don't even think of the words to defend yourself. He'll put them in your mouth. On the board, Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Here we see how twisted the nature of fallen man is. We're not talking about like compromising the truth. We're talking about totally flipping it, opposite, literally calling something evil good. How does someone get all the way to that point right there, calling evil good and good evil? It starts by believing small lies about what is truly good. And over time, Satan erodes our system of thinking and gets us to literally call good things evil and evil things good. We make up our own definitions for good. It's, it's shockingly stupid to go totally the opposite of God's ways, right? It's one thing to compromise and to skirt the truth, to please your flesh. It's another thing to go totally opposite of God's ways. And isn't that what we see in our world right now? Like in several areas of life, this is good and this is bad. And even 20, 30 years ago, you wouldn't have seen that or heard that uh, clear dogmatic statement by people. So we have to be on the alert not to get caught up in these false systems of thinking. Again, not to give in in our souls. There's going to be times you're in a situation, like I was saying before, if you're brought into a situation, now you're in it. There's going to be times that if you say nothing, you just condoned it. That's the way it is. Like the, the People are going to know you're a believer, especially if they know you're a believer, and you're brought into a situation or environment well, you're kind of put on the spot, maybe. Maybe someone even asks you, what do you think? This good? And you're going to be tempted to give in in some way or to say nothing. And by saying nothing, you're condoning that activity even. All right? So, again, be on guard not to give in in your soul. You're a soldier. Your job is to represent the Lord and speak the truth in love. So we have to examine ourselves, too, from time to time, or we won't see these areas in our, in our lives where we compromise like this. And you young people, you know, you got it probably, you know, especially tough in the sense of your peer pressure and your peers are even more worldly uh, if they're not in the Word of God than some people, older people, have to deal with. You're going to be bombarded sometimes. But just sit back and smile. Have that attitude. I got the truth. I'm going to do my job as unto the Lord. Speak the truth in love. So on the board, we have to examine ourselves so that we don't, you know, lose sight of certain things. On the board, the good litmus test 
It is very sobering to analyze our own definitions for good. We might quickly realize that what we think and even act upon as good really isn't. A good litmus test is to observe what we esteem or celebrate in ourselves and others. I mean, we all would be very smart to go home and like do this exercise for ourselves. It may save us a lot of pain and misery in our lives. But if you don't do this thing, if you don't examine yourself and examine your life situations and what you're <clears throat> giving into or calling good, you know, so much so that you, unless you sit back and examine it, you don't even remember you're doing that. Like, it's such a part of your life. So you don't do that, you're not going to see it. And the Spirit's telling you right now, do it. Examine yourself. See what you might be celebrating that's ungodly. So at this point on Sunday, we got back to seeing God's revelation of himself and his nature which is, of course, truly good. The Spirit is providing this approach so that we become more and more grounded spiritually, like the roots of a tree, rooted in His true and pure goodness. That's where God wants us. If you look to God for goodness, you won't look to the world for goodness. It's knowing Him and His goodness that will protect us from the lies. Again, which thing is your eyes on, you might say. Your eyes can only be one place at one time, right? Isn't it interesting? God created our eyes where you can't have one look that way and one look that way. That'd be freaky. You could try as hard as you want, but you can only look at one thing at a time. So which one are you looking at? Which one are you focusing on? Which one are you letting in to your soul through the eyes? If it's God and his goodness, you'll be able to, you know, Avoid the lies. You won't even be looking at them because you'll be so obsessed with God's goodness. You want to be obsessed with something in this world? You got addiction problems? Get obsessed with God's goodness. Get obsessed with God's creation. That'll solve so many problems in your life that your flesh tries to put your eyes on something else. It works. It's amazing. Go figure. The Word of God works, huh? But we have to obey it. We have to humbly obey it. So there are two types of revelation or two ways God reveals himself to man on the board. General versus special revelation. General is God's witness of himself through creation, which we've seen in Psalm uh, 19, 1 through 6. And special revelation is God reveals himself directly to us through things like Holy Scripture, Christ's incarnation, uh, dreams and visions, acts, etc. And we see that in Psalm 19, 7 through 14. So far, we've really been focusing on general revelation. So turn again to Psalm 19, verse 1. Quickly. I only have 10 minutes. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. In other words, these things speak to us without needing to speak a word, right? Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed the tent for the sun, 
which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, <clears throat> excuse me, and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. We saw a similar idea in Acts chapter 14, verse 7 on the board. And yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What we're talking about on the board here is divine providence. This is a part of general revelation as described in the Bible. The fact that nature provides for us is indicative of God's intrinsic goodness. All you have to do is look around. He did not leave himself without witness. Holy Scripture clearly tells us that all men will know of God in their hearts simply by his general revelation. It's like God's not like hiding himself at all. In fact, he's kind of showing off between all the kinds of creation on this earth and the, and the sky and the universe and the stars. Anyone that is humble is going to see him. Then the only question is, well, who are you, God? And of course, he provides to the person who asks for the truth. On the board, Romans 1.20, we've seen, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. I mean, someone might deny that all the amazing creation out there is from God, but in their heart, they actually know it. They don't want to go there for some reason. They don't want to admit it, or they've just been so deceived by the world, they've kind of bought the lies hook, line, and sinker. Only God can get through to them. On the board, Romans 10, 18. But I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice, a reference to the heavens in Psalm 19.4, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So as Holy Scripture has just revealed to us on the board, the simple fact is that every person who's ever lived has known that God exists at some point in their lives. They may decide to deny it, and suppress him, as Romans 1 says, suppress the truth. But they've known in their heart that God exists. And this is all part of God's grace in giving out the gospel to the world. This is the amazingly simple, pure goodness of God. This is all part of God's grace in giving out the good news of the gospel to the world. On the board, we know his desire in 1 Timothy 2.4, is for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's heart. So he does whatever it takes, including doing creation, things that are impossible to man and even science. Does whatever it takes to get man's attention. As Pastor mentioned on Sunday, God uses general revelation to lead people eventually to salvation. On the board, God is saying to the world, I'm sovereign and you know it, and you need a Savior. 
Love it. It's a pretty good summary statement. If, if someone said, you know, give me the gospel or something in 10 words, this might be what you say. You know, repent and believe. Repent towards God and believe in Christ. God has given every man a conscience too, so he knows he's not worthy enough on his own when he comes to this realization of Almighty God being the source of everything. And then God will show the humble person the way to salvation. Something else the Spirit brought up on Sunday. Where did man get the idea or even the word forever from? Where did that come from? Think about it. If every man dies one day, every man dies one day, right? So if that's true, why is, why is man even thinking about living forever? Where did that come from? It came from God's grace, putting it in their hearts. It's all part of God's amazing grace plan. So regarding general revelation, God witnesses to himself through creation, Romans 1.20. God creates man with a conscience, ability to know right and wrong, Romans 2.14-16. And God sets eternity in man's heart, Ecclesiastes 3.11. So at this point, I'm going to close with a point here. I only have a couple minutes left. So the whole point that kind of came out on, on Sunday was that God saves. Like the whole purpose behind all this revelation is for God to save mankind. He purposely reveals his own glory through creation to creatures, man, that have the God-given faculties to comprehend it. To the humble man, this is the repentance part of the gospel, the faith part is in Christ, our Redeemer, as Job said in Job 19.25. I know my Redeemer lives. See, he knew God, that divine knowledge, that transcendent knowledge, to see above it all, to see the truth. He knew his Redeemer lives. You might recall the Spirit had me teach a series back in February of 2016 called Salvation Slash Deliverance is from our Creator Slash Redeemer. And part of the emphasis was on God using his creation as an example to man to bring man to a repentant attitude about his standing before God so that he could then seek a Savior and, and Christ turn to Christ to be saved. So obviously the Spirit is emphasizing this from a different angle this time, but from the same pure goodness of God. So as we close, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 17, verse 30. Acts 17, verse 30. This passage is right after the passage we've already seen regarding God revealing himself through creation. If you just look at the verses previous to it, we've read this the last two lessons. Like in verse 29. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. And look at verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. This comes right after the explanation on creation and that there is an almighty God over us who even created us. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, 
God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So there we see the intended result of general revelation. Man coming to realize his insufficiency before an almighty God and creator. And that there is a savior whom he has provided as a way of escape from judgment. And remember our old friend on the board in Acts 20, 21. Paul said his habitual way of giving the gospel included solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward who? God, the creator of heaven and earth. The one who created all this. The one who created the infinite universe. The one who lets you breathe. The one who gave you a brain and a soul and even a conscience. That's who we got to repent to. And then faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. God graciously reveals himself, even through creation itself, so that man can open his eyes to his own depravity before perfectly good God and reach out for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we might say on the board as we close, revelation is for salvation. Our God is truly good in all his intentions and actions. He reveals himself to man with great grace and patience in hopes that man repents and sees the light of Jesus Christ and spends eternity with him forever. That's really why God did all this, why he reveals himself in these different ways. Right? Bringing man to salvation. Again, our God is truly good in all his intentions and actions. He reveals himself to man with great grace and patience in hopes that man repents and sees the light of Jesus Christ and spends eternity with him forever. What a truly good God we have. Isn't that amazing? That's, that's, God's, that's God's main gig. That's his main purpose. That's his main goal. That's his main desire of his heart. It's not to make us feel condemned by his awesome power and, and such. It's to bring us along so patiently to come to a point where we surrender to him as Lord and Savior. Amen? He's good. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for being who you are. We thank you for your pure goodness. We ask that you help us come to know you better. Help us come to know your heart through Scripture and through the Spirit. The whole purpose of giving us knowledge is to know you. Help us know yourself and your Son, Jesus Christ, better and better through your Holy Spirit. We ask that you bless us as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen.